This is History West Midlands. Just a few yards away from the Chamberlain Memorial Clock at the heart of Birmingham's jewellery quarter is a street that encapsulates the social and economic history of this distinctive and important district. It is Victoria Street. Seemingly a quiet backwater in the midst of this busy area, Victoria Street has an intriguing history that tells us much about the stages of development of the jewellery quarter, its historical buildings, its manufacturers and the lives of its residents poor as well as wealthy. In this programme, Professor Carl Chin reveals these stories as he guides us on a walk along Victoria Street. Birmingham's jewellery quarter was one of England's most important and distinctive manufacturing centres in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Located a short distance to the northwest of the city centre, it arose rapidly from the 1840s as the town's jewellers gathered close to each other in a pleasant neighbourhood which previously had been the preserve of a few wealthy families living in grand houses or else which had been covered by extensive gardens. With the trade subdivided into different aspects of various manufacturing processes, it was beneficial for the jewellers to work alongside each other so that each piece could be sent quickly to the person working on the next stage, whether it be gold rolling, pressing, stamping, engraving, case making, jewel mounting, jewel setting or polishing. A trade of mostly well-paid, skilled male workers, they were employed by prosperous small gaffers whose business premises, called shopping, were put up in the plots behind their homes. By the 1860s, purpose-built works also began to be erected on the last open spaces and on sites once occupied by the large residences. Then... As the 19th century drew to an end, the employers began to move their families away from what was now a deeply industrial setting to more salubrious suburbs. Their former dwellings were split into workshops, but behind many of them remained poorer families living in badly built back-to-back houses, and they made precarious livings from dirty, hard and unskilled work in Birmingham's multifarious trades. One street encapsulates the social and economic history of the jewellery quarter and it can be found just a few yards away from the Chamberlain clock which is at the heart of the district. That street is Victoria Street. So, let's walk along it and seek out the story of this remarkable street. Victoria Street itself begins at Graham Street and that's where I'm standing now, outside the Ramgaria Sikh Temple. Opened originally in 1844 for the Highbury Independent Chapel, it could seat 1,000 people and was put up when this locality, then known as Harpers Hill, was in the throes of urbanisation. I've crossed the road and I'm on the corner of Victoria Street and Graham Street, the one nearest to Frederick Street. To my left is the former entrance to the Victoria Works of Joseph Gillett, the premises of which stretch down the west side of Victoria Street all the way to number 20. The son of a workman in the Sheffield cutlery trade, Gillett became one of Birmingham's greatest manufacturers. He came here in the early 1820s and set up as a small gaffer in the light steel toy trade, the making of buckles, chains and other small wares. With a fine reputation for his goods, he prospered, but he may have remained another successful small manufacturer if he had not met Maria Mitchell. 
Her brothers, John and William, made steel pens, but their process was laborious and quite expensive. Sharp, clever and persevering, Joseph Gillett devised a quick, efficient and cheap way of manufacturing steel pens. In the pearl button trade, craftsmen used a hand press to force out a blank from the shells, the raw material. So, Gillett contrived a hand press to push out the blank of a steel pen from a sheet of metal and so speed up production. His wares were superior in quality to any others on the market and he was able to make as many steel pens as 20 people labouring without a hand press. The orders poured in because of the quality and increasing cheapness of his steel pens and this came at a time of growing demand from an expanding population which was becoming more literate. As Gillett's business grew in 1839, he paid for a purpose-built manufactory in Graeme Street, between Frederick Street and Victoria Street. He was one of the first to do so at a time when most of Birmingham's manufacturers were small gaffers, operating in small workshops, attics or narrow and low shopping. Production at the Victoria Works grew spectacularly and in 1843 the number of pens manufactured there was an amazing 105 million. Believed to be an enlightened and paternalistic employer, Gillett established a benevolent society amongst his workpeople, who worked in a much better environment than others in Birmingham. Their red brick factory covered almost 4,000 square yards and could accommodate around 600 workers. They laboured in spacious, lofty and airy workrooms that were clean and provided with plenty of light. This was achieved by having three-storey buildings that were long and which had a line of wide windows, both to the front and the rear. The introduction of the biro after the Second World War sounded the death knell for the Birmingham steel pen trade and a variety of businesses then operated from the Victoria Works. Now transformed into apartments and offices, the building is Grade 2 listed because of its importance in the industrial development of Birmingham and its international significance as the first place where steel pen nibs were mass-produced. Other purpose-built factories followed locally and there are several examples on the west side of Victoria Street. All are Grade 2 listed, they are red brick, three storeys high and lined with windows to allow light to come in for the jewellers engaged in intricate work. One example is at number 28 Victoria Street, just along from the Victoria Works. In June 1866 it was advertised as newly erected and convenient premises for rent to factors and wholesale jewellers. As such, 28 is an early example of a purpose-built jewellery works. A similar structure is next door at number 30. I'm looking at it now. It has an ornate doorway as well as distinctive pediments above the two windows of the first floor. Numbers 32 and 34 were also purpose-built and as a whole, but with two separate sections, of which 34 was the larger. Later known as the Victoria Works, in January 1868 it was announced in the press that W. Heath's Electroplating Works was moving there from Hall Street. William Heath employed 14 people, but according to the 1871 census, he and his wife Mary also lived there, along with their baby son, a cook and a nurse. It was a common practice amongst middling manufacturers to live in front of their workshops, but as they prospered, so did they move their home away from the businesses. The Heaths did this in the 1880s, relocating to the adjoining Frederick Street, which was more residential than the more industrial Victoria Street. As for 32, it was leased by a jeweller in 1870, then became the merchant's offices of W. Herbert Williams and Company, and next was leased by George Hopkins and Company, scarf and belt fittings makers.
The development of purpose-built works was the final stage in the urbanisation of the Harpers Hill locality. In the early 19th century, it had been dotted with a few grand houses and by gardens that then surrounded much of Birmingham. Less than a generation later, the gardens had mostly disappeared and the district was attracting the families of middle-class professionals, small-scale manufacturers with shopping behind their homes and highly skilled men. The social range of its residents was wide. It included middle-class occupations such as commercial travellers, clerks, a bookkeeper and a governess, as well as shopkeepers like a woolen draper, tea dealer, butcher and publican. There was also a paper dealer, boarding house keeper and three employers. Finally, there were servants in the homes of the more prosperous, as well as many working men and women who gave their occupations as jewellers, japanners, solderers, toolmakers, polishers, brass founders, dressmakers, thimble makers and silversmiths, amongst others. One of the last large open spaces locally was the land belonging to Harpers Hill House, which had extensive frontages both to Frederick Street and Victoria Street. It belonged to John Betts, a wealthy refiner and smelter of gold and silver whose premises were in Charlotte Street. However, with his death, the land belonging to the house was sold as valuable freehold. It seems likely that the Grade 2 listed Unity Works at numbers 36 to 40 and where I am now was built on part of the Harpers Hill House estate. This is because in 1866 the firm of Henry Jenkins and Sons advertised in the Birmingham Daily Post that, in order to meet the demands of increasing connection, it had moved from nearby in Spencer Street to suitable premises in Victoria Street. In so doing, its proprietors embraced this opportunity to tender their thankful acknowledgements for past favours and to express their determination by unrelaxed efforts on their part to sustain the very high estimation which for many years has been awarded to them in all branches of die sinking, tool making, stamping, piercing etc. and in all of which branches it will still be their ambition to be excelled by none. The Unity Works was extended in 1898, by which time the company was also involved in tool making, electroplating, stamping and piercing. During the First World War it moved over to munitions and made more than one million rifle oilers for Lee Enfield rifles for the BSA, the Birmingham Small Arms Company Small Heath. Henry Jenkins and Sons continued to operate here until the later 20th century. Just past the Unity Works are two Georgian-looking structures at numbers 48 to 52 Victoria Street, which are now being transformed into luxury apartments. Although reaching three storeys, they are not as high as the adjoining works. Set back from the pavement, they are very different in style. Built as houses, they are approached by sentry place steps and were first noted in the 1851 census. That year, Mary Ashwell was living at 48. She was 76 and an annuitant receiving an annual pension that was big enough for her to be able to live in a grand house. With her were two unmarried daughters, aged 56 and 45, and a 14-year-old servant. Intriguingly, ten years later, the building was given as the premises of a jeweller called M. Joseph Rothschild, who also lived there as a boarder to another family. The two adjoining premises, including 52, were given in an 1861 business directory as occupied by Rothschild & Co, wholesale jewellers. Between the Georgian houses and Regent Street are numbers 54, 56 and 58, and they are part of another purpose-built three-storey structure, but this one is much more decorative than most. Again Grade 2 listed, it was built in 1905 to the design of the architects Essex, Nicholl and Goodman. 
This elegant building curves broadly into Regent Street and in 1908 the businesses working from here included two jewellers, a dye sinker, gold ring maker and diamond cutter. From the late 1820s, the far side of Regent Street was dominated by William Elliott's bottom works. Then, in 1837, an extension was added to the back of these premises, taking them by way of a curve around into 60, 62 and 64 Victoria Street, and that's where I am standing now. This plain building is another that is Grade 2 listed. It was built shortly before the Victoria Works at Gillette, and as such is probably the oldest surviving substantial factory building of the jury quarter. Like Gillette's pen factory, it is made of red brick, whilst each of its three storeys is lined with windows, giving plenty of light for the women who are operating the hand presses that were so vital to the button trade. Next door, at number 66 and 68, is a manufactory built at the end of the 19th century. It is of the same general design as Elliot's in its height, large number of windows and red brick, but it is more ornate, with painted stone dressings and moulded brick decoration. I've walked just a few yards up Victoria Street and I'm looking at the eye-catching and impressive school of jewellery at numbers 82 to 86. The importance of design and the application of art methods to the making of jewellery was recognised from an early date by Birmingham's jewellers. Then, in 1887, the Jewellers and Silversmiths Association was formed to promote art and technical education. To this end, from 1888, the association made arrangements for art instruction to be given to employees by the Municipal School of Art at a new branch school in Ellen Street, nearby in Brookfields. Half of the students' fees were paid for by the association and the other half usually by the employer. Demand for instruction was high and the council also recognised that there was a need to provide a more fully equipped branch school in that part of the town mostly occupied by the workshops of goldsmiths, silversmiths and jewellers. As a result, a building was leased and it was the splendid two-storey Venetian Gothic factory of William and John Randall, goldsmiths at 84 Victoria Street, which had been erected in about 1865. The new branch of the Municipal School of Art was opened on the 18th of September 1890, becoming the Municipal School for Jewellers and Silversmiths. In 1911, the school was extended to the south by the construction of a new block on the site of an old electroplate and tin plate workshop. Forty years later, all jewellery and silversmithing teaching at the College of Art in Margaret Street was moved to Victoria Street and a single school was created. Then, in 1992, numbers 70 to 74 Victoria Street were taken over and demolished. Three years later, an extensive building and refurbishment programme was completed, creating the largest teaching institution for the specialisation of jewellery throughout Europe. Today, the internationally renowned School of Jewellery is part of the Faculty of the Arts, Design and Media of Birmingham City University. I've crossed over Victoria Street to its east side and I'm standing just up from Warstone Lane outside numbers 97 and 99. They're also Grade 2 listed and belong to a terrace running round into Warstone Lane itself. Built in the early 1850s, they are a pair of three-storey houses with an entry between them and with original shop fronts. In 1855, number 97 was a hosier's run by John Lewis who lived there with his wife, children and a housemaid. A few doors up was James Reeves, a stamper, and then came Sarah Orme, a widow and thimble maker. Their houses were knocked down and replaced in about 1870 by a new works at 85 and 87, and I'm looking at them now. 
Grade 2 listed and three storeys high, the building is made of red brick and it is distinctive because of its blue brick detailing. It was put up for Benjamin Lyons, who gave himself as a wire drawer in 1873. However, a decade later, the firm of Benjamin Lyons & Son had moved into the more prestigious field of gold plate manufacturing. Like other smaller factories, it has a two-bay wagon entrance, including a small door. To the left is the entrances to the offices, and to the right, a larger door into the workshops. Later known as the Lyons Buildings, in the 1940s, the premises were used by a saw piercer, silversmith and diamond polisher, as well as by Mrs Alice Lawley, a solderer. Walking along from the Lions building, I've passed the modern structures of Cooks and Gold, a major employer locally and the United Kingdom's largest one-stop shop for jewellery makers. Next door, numbers 55 and 57, was the site of Thomas and John Bragg, a large manufacturing jewellers establishment. By 1861, they were employing 48 workmen and three assistants, and the Braggs had become well-known for valuing quality and design. In September 1865, a knowledgeable commentator in the Daily News appraised the Birmingham jewellery trade from a London point of view. It was noted that Braggs usually employed between 30 and 40 apprentices. All of them had to show some amount of skill in drawing and each was bound through their indentures to attend the Birmingham School of Art and Government School of Design. The value of design at Bragg's was underscored by the constant employment of a special artist to make new designs and the London correspondents recognised many which were familiar to him in the shop windows of Regent Street and Bond Streets. Three years later, in 1868, Thomas Bragg was praised as the head of one of the most important firms in the manufacturing jewellery trade, one that has done a great deal to elevate the character of Birmingham jewellery, which now fairly rivals even the productions of London or Paris. The company continued into the early 20th century. The next Grade 2 listed building is at number 51 on the corner with Regent Place. It was built as a smaller house that was part of a terrace. Number 53 also remains, but is not listed. Across Regent Place is the large standard works at numbers 41 to 49. Inside, and that's where I am now, is the Hive Heritage and Craft Room. It's a cracking space, bringing together artefacts, photographs, descriptions, and much more about the history of this stunning building. It was designed by Thomas F. Williams and it was built in 1879-80 to 80 for multiple occupancy. It replaced a substantially built house comprising dining room, drawing room, sitting room, good kitchens and china pantry, five bedrooms and dressing room with garden, coach house and stabling. And that house was advertised for let in 1854. Within a year, whoever had taken it on had added an excellent range of shopping and it appears that this was leased by Edwin Cottrell, a lock and fire safe maker. By 1871, another lockmaker, Henry Fear, had taken over the buildings. However, within two years, a jeweller's factor, Bernard Rubinstein, was advertised as based at the premises. But his business failed in 1876. The redevelopment of the site then followed. The section nearest to Regent Place was used by Black and Sea and Levitus silversmiths and the Levitus brothers, gold chain makers. This section was known as the Canada Works, as in 1873, Edward Levitus gave his address as Montreal, and he was associated with the manufacture of Canada Gold, a superior class of imitation gold. His older brother Hyman was his partner, and they were the sons of Louis Levitus, who was from Romania, although his wife Celia was from Hampshire.
According to the 1871 census, Lewis was a retired shachet for the Hebrew congregation, a person officially certified as competent to kill cattle and poultry in the manner prescribed by Jewish law. All of their children were born in Birmingham from 1849 onwards, and Hyman and Edward first set up business in Northampton Street and Icknill Street West in about 1870. Eight years later, they exhibited at the Paris Exhibition, where they received honourable mention for excellence in plated jewellery. Edward Levitus died in 1895, and soon after, the family association with the Canada Works ended. By then, D&L Spires Limited, silversmiths, were in place in another part of the building that was known as the Standard Works. David and Lionel Spires were also Jewish, and the sons of Nathan Cohen Spires from Lublin in Poland and his wife Sophia from Birmingham. The parents were pawnbrokers in Ann Street, later part of Carmel Row. But by 1873, David and Lionel were gilt jewellery manufacturers in Hilton Street and were making enough money to live in a fine house in Duchess Road, Edgbaston. Lionel Spires was a significant figure in the jewellery quarter and in 1906 was chairman of the Jewellers and Silversmiths Association. By the door on the corner of the Standard Works with Regent Street is a nameplate that of Joseph Smith & Sons Birmingham Limited, manufacturing jewellers and the last occupiers of the building is in the 1980s. From the end of the 20th century, this building was empty for 20 years. Fortunately, it has now been revived by the Ruskin Mill Land Trust. On the first floor is Argent College, a specialist further education college for young people with learning difficulties and complex needs, and it is run by the Ruskin Mill Trust. The Hive Cafe and Bakery and the Hive Heritage and Craft Rooms are on the ground floor, and there's an urban rooftop microphone. Students from the college are learning to bake in the cafe and to grow organic produce on the roof as part of their curriculum. The cafe also enables the students to gain valuable work experience. Having left the Standard Works, I've come to a curious type of home, a pair of three-quarter houses at numbers 35 and 37. There is an elegant doorway between them, which is approached by two steps flanked by a Tuscan pillar on each side. Behind the doorway was a shared passage, with doors on either side leading into each house. Three storeys high, each dwelling had two rooms on the ground and first floors, and either one large room or two smaller rooms on the third floor. The passageway between the houses also led to the backyard, with a shared brewer's, washhouse, privy and ash pits. Built in the mid-19th century for prosperous families, two wings of shopping were soon added at the rear of houses. Number 35 became the premises of Alfred S. Patterson, a manufacturer of spoons and forks, who was also an electro and general plater on steel and German silver. Five years later, he was calling his workplace the Colonial Works, but by 1865 it was run by Naylor Clark & Company, electro-plate manufacturers. According to a newspaper report in 1869, they were employing about 100 people at what they now refer to as the Caledonian Works. By the mid-1870s, they shared them with Alfred Woodward, a pencil case maker. Then in 1883, the electroplating business failed, and by 1890, Woodward was operating for both numbers 35 and 37. Alongside number 35 is another Grade 2 listed building at 33. It is part of a three-storey manufactory erected in the late 19th century which originally extended further along Victoria Street to include numbers 29 and 31. During the 1960s and after, a number of historically important buildings were cleared in Victoria Street as they were elsewhere in the jewellery quarter. I'm standing outside one of them now, St Helen's House. It's next door to number 33 and it runs down to number 23. Interestingly though, in this modern structure, 
is one of the jewellery quarter's oldest firms, W.J. Sutton, a family-run manufacturing jewellers and wholesalers. It's 132 years old and proudly boasts over 6,000 lines while specialising in quality silver and gold handmade chain. With many of the buildings of Victoria Street turned into offices and plans to transform others into apartments, it is encouraging that W.J. Sutton continues to make high-quality jewellery in a street once famed for its jewellers and allied trades. St Helen's House is on the corner with St Helen's Passage. It's a short, tiny street, a cul-de-sac, and it's now forlorn of the folk who lived here into the 1960s when their back houses were swept away in the post-war redevelopment of Birmingham. Sadly, their lives and those of others like them have been mostly forgotten in modern Birmingham, as has their ability to forge strong neighbourhoods in the midst of industry and despite bad housing. So that I can shed light on another side of life in Victoria Street, that of the poor who lived in such housing, I'm going back across the street to numbers 22 and 24. Today, this is a self-contained building, but originally it was four back-to-back -back houses built before 1861, named as Hills Buildings in the Ordnance Survey Map of 1887. They were three storeys high. Each had an attic above a bedroom and one ground floor room. This was multifunctional, serving as a living room, kitchen, dining room, washroom, bedroom and workroom for older married women with several children who could carry out tasks at home for local manufacturers. At the front of number 24 you can still see the outline of the original door which has now been bricked up. The one door that is now there in the middle once would have been the entry leading into the court behind. This was known by Brummies as a yard into which faced the house at the back of the two on the street. There were two more houses at the far end of the yard each had a house backing onto them in a yard that was entered from Frederick Street. Both yards would have had a brew house, ash pits and a privy, later replaced by dustbins and a dry pan lavatory shared between two families. By 1891, William and Emily Olson were living at 24. He was a butcher and she was a dressmaker working from home. With them were their two young children and Emily's 69-year-old widowed mother. Next door at 22, the 73-year-old widow, Elizabeth James, lived on her own. It must have been hard for her to survive independently and to do so she was still working as a jewellery case maker probably doing so at home. Behind 24 at one back of 24 lived Charles Mitchell an engine fitter along with his wife and three daughters aged nine and under. Next door two back of 24 was the home of the unmarried Emily Phillips a 35 year old tailoress. To make ends meet, she had a lodger, Ellen Fowler, who was 22 and worked in a warehouse in a brass founders. At the end of the yard, at three back of 24, living conditions must have been cramped for the family of John and Margaret Stewart. No occupation was recorded for him in the census, but his wife was a paper bag maker. She wouldn't have earned a lot from that. Things must have been tough for them and their oldest child, Isabella, aged 17. She worked in a warehouse, whilst her 15-year-old brother Robert was a brass dresser. Three years younger, John was originally recorded as a scholar in the census, but that was crossed out and instead he was given as a boy porter. The two youngest children, Bertram and Ellen, were at school and the household was made up by Margaret's 22-year-old sister Priscilla, who was also a paper bag maker. Their neighbours, at four back of 24, were Charles and Emma Stallard, aged 21 and 20. He was an electroplate polisher. And although no occupation was given for his wife, the part-time employment of many poorer women was not recorded by the enumerators. Lodging with them was William Williams, 20, who worked in the coffin furniture trade. 
His wife Emma was the same age and had a two-month-old baby, Alice. Though no job was given for her, it was likely that poverty would soon force her to find work. I've arrived back where I started, by Joseph Gillett's Victoria Works. We can admire a man like him, who started from very little, and who, through hard work, initiative, business ability, and a fortuitous marriage to his wife Maria, became highly successful. Other manufacturers, like the Braggs, William Elliot, Edward Levitus, and Lionel Spire should also be remembered, whilst the architecture of the buildings that they had built or worked in remain as a tribute to Birmingham's jewellery makers. But we should also respect the stewards, Elizabeth James, and all those other working-class brummies who lived so insecurely in overcrowded conditions in the streets back-to-backs. Mostly, they did so with fortitude and dignity, and they too played a role in the making of one of Birmingham's most remarkable streets, Victoria Streets. Victoria Street, along with Frederick Street, Leg Lane, Albion Street, Regent Street, and part of Walston Lane and Graham Street, is embraced within the Jewellery Quarter Townscape Heritage JQTH project. A three-year scheme funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, it aims to regenerate this area within the Jewellery Quarter's industrial middle through the repair and restoration of historic buildings and the delivery of events and activities for all. To discover more podcasts and films from History West Midlands, visit the website at www.historywm.com. Thank you.